The Leap Foundation proudly presents the Meet the Mentor podcast with Dr. Bill Dorfman. Dr. Bill is a TV host, New York Times bestselling author, two-time Guinness World Book record holder, fitness guru, celebrity cosmetic dentist, and philanthropist who founded the Leap Foundation. Here's Dr. Bill. Hey, Dr. Bill here. We are about to do an epic Meet the Mentor. Now, I always say a great one. This one will be epic. Uh, This is a very, very special guest. I'll tell you about him in just a second. Uh, We met years and years ago through his work and um, have stayed friends for many, many years. And I'm super excited to do this. The reason we do these Meet the Mentors is that LEAP has been going on now for 13 years. And every year at UCLA, we get 450 of the most amazing students where we teach them skills to be successful in life. The pinnacle of LEAP every year is the mentor workshop. What happens in the mentor workshop? We bring in a hundred different professionals from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, firefighters, actors, actresses, and the students get an opportunity to sit and talk with these people one-on-one and ask them, you know, how did you make your career? What were your challenges? how did you get over those? And, and all, it's, it's amazing. We believe that the fastest way to success is to find a great mentor. I had great mentors and was so fortunate. So the, the whole goal of LEAP is to teach students 15 to 25 the skills to be successful. Now, Our next LEAP program will be July 18th to the 24th at UCLA. We're hoping it will be live. Uh, If not, it will be virtual. And if it is, it will be live and virtual. We had over a thousand students participate this year, which was phenomenal. The thing I love most about LEAP is the fact that we get so much community support. I mean, People that have come and spoken for free at this program, Mark Wahlberg, Anthony Hopkins, Paula Abdul, Michael Strahan, Jason Alexander, Jonathan Bennett, Usher. I mean, you name it. And these people come and donate their time because like me, they believe that our future is with our youth. And so it is with great honor and pleasure that I get to introduce you to a living icon. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about Harvey. Harvey Levin has received nine Emmy Awards and numerous other local and national awards for news and investigative reporting at the NBC and CBS affiliates in Los Angeles. Prior to TMZ, he created and served as executive producer for the syndicated series Celebrity Justice. And prior to that, he served as the executive producer and consultant for the TV show, The People's Court. And he continues to host the interactive segments on the show once in a while. Levin also served as the executive consultant on the syndicated program, Moral Court, and the managing editor of the syndicated program, Superior Court. He spent a decade as an investigative reporter for KCBS TV in Los Angeles and covered numerous high profile court cases for a number of the top CBS stations across the country, including affiliates in New York and Chicago. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to somebody I know is no stranger to all of you, Harvey Levin. Hey, Harvey. Hey, Dr. Bill. 
Um, let me tell you, uh, they should not listen to a thing I said because until about 30 seconds ago, I thought that was a real aquarium behind you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so what do going I to be, but I am on the 30th floor of a a condo complex and the oh, no. weight of the water yeah. no water too no. much but <laughs> no, i have no, giant no, no, fish no. <laughs> oh it's great it's, re it's okay. really cool so harvey this all started as a fluke i mean you actually graduated high school graduated college and went to law school how did you end up in law school how did i end up in law school um you know i wanted to go into politics and um, that was always my goal. I, I, I am a political animal. I love politics. I've loved politics since I was 11 years old. I, I, I was just, I couldn't watch enough news. I loved watching politics and, and wanted to be in it. And so I figured the way to do that was to become a lawyer. I mean, I, and I didn't really think too much about it. It just most of the people in politics seem to be lawyers. So I figured, well, they must know something about that. And I figured it's probably good to know the law if you're going to make laws. So go to law school. So that was kind of the, um, that was the 1.0 version of why I chose to do that. Um, it changed over time, but that's, that was the reason in high school why I set my sights on law school. And what happened when you decided to practice law? Well, there's a story before that that I, will, that I will tell you. And I think it does speak to what we are talking about here, um, which is, you know, how do you chart your own course and how do you become successful? And, you know, what are the tricks of the trade in doing that? So for me, maybe the most important single event in my lifetime was I graduated from a college at UC Santa Barbara. And I, like I told you, I love politics. Well, I loved political science. And I was a political science major. I had no idea how much I would enjoy it. So I changed my plan. And I thought, I'm going to become a political science professor. And so I found out the University of Wisconsin offered one of the best programs in the country. So I got accepted. I went to Wisconsin. And it, was a, it started very early, Dr. Bell. I think it was July that it started. Within a month, I realized it wasn't for me. I wasn't going to spend five years getting a doctorate. And I just, I could, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back to my original plan, go to law school. So I sent applications out and I got, an I got a letter back from the University of Chicago. And it was from the dean. And he said, look, since you're reasonably close, since you're in Madison and we're in Wisconsin and uh, in Chicago, if you're ever in the area, come by for an interview. And so I put the letter away and forgot about it. And I figured I'll just stay at Wisconsin for the year and get a master's degree. Well, about a month later, I thought, what the hell am I going to do with a master's degree in political science? So I thought, I'm just going to go back to California. And I got a job at the Department of Consumer Affairs in Sacramento, packed all my bags. And I remember the date. It was October 12th. And I got in an airplane that was delayed and I landed in Chicago. The delay, by the way, is important. It was delayed for three hours. So I landed in Chicago and I thought, you know, I'm going to go to the law school. And I had, I had already called the dean and said I may be able to come. Well, I jumped in a cab and I went out and we sat down for two or three minutes and talked about nothing. I mean, the weather, we talked about nothing. And he looks at me and he says, 
so how'd you like to go to law school? And I said, of course I want to go to law school. I just spent $20 on a cab ride one way. And he said, you don't understand. He said, somebody just dropped out of the first year class two hours ago. Do you want a spot? Oh my gosh. And I looked at him and I said, I don't have any money. I've never been in Chicago before in my life. I have all my belongings on an airplane ready to go to California. I have a job there. I rented an apartment there. I have no place to live here. You're in the quarter system and you're two weeks in. So I would be hopelessly behind and would probably flunk out. So yeah, I want to go to law school, but no. And he looked at me and he said something that changed my life. And he said, you know, he said, you can apply, um, you know, for next fall if you want, and maybe you'll get accepted, but maybe you won't. So ah. if you want to roll the dice and take a chance with all of these unknowns, um, or do you want to go back to California and hope you get admitted? And I sat there for a couple of minutes and I tried to process it. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm going to do it. And then he said, well, not so fast. <laughs> he said, I have to convene the admissions committee. So there's a whole story here, and it's a crazy story where the cab driver ends up pulling a knife on me on the way back to Chicago and everything else. But the short story is I got accepted, and the next day I was in law school. I had no place to live. I had no money. I was two weeks behind in the quarter system in the first year of law school. I didn't know what was going on. My head was spinning, and it was the best thing I ever did because I seized an opportunity. And it was an opportunity that I couldn't fully understand, but I knew it was an opportunity. And rather than just playing it safe with all of those obstacles, I thought, I'm going to do this. And being at that school has immeasurably changed my life. I mean, aside from the fact that I got a, a, an education, I got an amazing education and I met a professor of mine, this woman who became my mentor, who then took over the deanship at the University of Miami. And she invited me to uh, come down for a year and teach law school when I graduated. And I did, and then I fell in love with teaching. So I went back to LA, I practiced law for a couple of years, really didn't like it. And then I went back into teaching again because it was my passion at the time. And I wasn't sure where my life was going, but I was trying to just follow my passion. And you know, I, I think that's amazing. And I'll tell you something, Harvey. We teach a lot at LEAP, but there's two things. There's two things that if, if a kid comes to LEAP and just walks away with these two things, I feel like I did my job. Number one, don't wait for opportunities in life. Make them, you know? And number two, when you do get an opportunity, don't take it master it and there's yeah. a big difference listen there is a, there, there's a big there's difference. a huge difference when dr bill you know you you know why some people don't seize the opportunity and master it you know you know what one word fear i exactly but the let fear. me tell you something when abc gave me the opportunity to be on extreme makeover i stunk i mean dentistry great tv no I watched the first few episodes and I thought they should fire me. I'm that bad. 
Well, that's but so funny. instead of stinking for a whole season, you know what I did, Harvey? I know what I you did. Acting classes, yep. hosting yep. classes, teleprompting. I hired, you know, Ramey Warren, who works with the kids on American Idol. Yep. I hired Ramey and had her teach me how to be on TV, how to read a teleprompter. I mean, you okay. know, okay. It, I, I, it's I, what I, you got to do. We, we have been through the exact same experience because I got to tell you. So I told you, I left off where I said I, I started teaching law school again. What that did was it gave me an opportunity to do other things because I, was, I wasn't practicing law 80 hours a day, 80 hours a week. And so um, I ended up ironically getting in a, involved in a political campaign um, with a property tax measure in California where I was debating this folk hero named Howard Jarvis. And I was debating him all over the country and a TV station noticed and they offered me a job to do um, consumer reporting on television, on the news. And I stunk. I literally said what you just said, I said. I was so bad. I couldn't read. I looked like a deer in the headlights reading a teleprompter. That's I, what I always say. I know. And I, and I said, I, said I, I cannot believe I'm not getting fired. I knew at the time how bad I was. But what I did was I, I went to the news director and I said, look, I know when holidays come up or vacations, you know, people don't want to work. They don't want to pitch in and, and substitute for people. I will substitute for everybody here. I will work Christmas. I will work New Year's. I will work Thanksgiving. Let me have the experience to learn this craft. And he let me because he figured since he's got me anyway, you know, on holidays, nobody's watching anyway. So we'll let him do it. And that's how I learned. I wanted to master it, and I, I had the exact same experience you had. Exactly. Yeah, and I'll tell you something. For students that are watching this, the best, experience, the best way to learn is to do. Watching myself on TV, I was my biggest critic. Like, I saw all the bad stuff I did, and watching myself over and over and over again, I learned how to be better and better and better at it. And you're right, Harvey. I mean, the biggest reason people don't do things is fear. And I'll tell you something. I never fail, ever. And I'll tell you why. If I do something and it doesn't come out the way I want it to, I don't consider that failure. I call that practice. And then I do it again and again and again and again until I succeed. So you really only fail when you quit. And if you don't quit, you won't fail. And there's a really big common misnomer, and it's this. We've all heard the saying, practice makes what? I know what it makes. It makes perfect. Wrong. Practice makes permanent. Yeah. If you keep practicing the wrong way, you'll never get better. And that's why having a mentor, having somebody that can show you the right way is so critical. So well, since, since, you, since, it's, since it's your podcast, am I allowed to completely disagree with you on something? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so you say you've never failed and you don't view it as failure. You view it as basically practiced for success. I view my failures as failures and I, I say it out loud if I did something, I, you know, I did a show once called Famous in 12. And um, it was about, I, I was trying to see if I could make a, 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 an unknown family famous in 12 weeks, like the Kardashians. And I loved the idea, did not execute it well. And um, they canceled it after five episodes. So we called it Famous in Five. It was a failure. And I told everybody what a failure it is. And I joke to this day what a failure it was, but I say it for a reason because it takes away the fear. 
If I know that I have to fail sometimes to learn so I can succeed the next time and I can accept and admit that it was a failure, but it's a building block, but still a failure, then I'm not afraid to fail again. And you can't succeed if you're afraid to fail. So I think you embrace failure and say, when I fail, I will tell the world. At the mountaintop, I'll tell the world. Because once I'm comfortable enough to know that failure doesn't ruin you and that failure teaches you lessons if you're smart, then I take the fear away. And by taking the fear away, it allows me a better opportunity to succeed. I think that perspective is amazing. And if it works for you, I think it's amazing. And I think that there, you know, there's a, at the end of the day, I think we're saying the same thing. It's a building block for it's success. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how you title it, it, it's, it's your prerogative. So you've had all this experience. You go to law school, you put together a few shows. Tell me how TMZ started. And by the way, most of the kids that are listening have no idea what TMZ stands for. Maybe you can tell them, start okay. with that. Well, TMZ stands for 30 mile zone. And that's the way they used to kind of define Hollywood. That if you did a movie within a 30 mile radius of um, the Writers Guild in Los Angeles, then um, they didn't have to pay for your hotel or your, uh, give you a per diem for meals. If you did it outside the 30 mile zone, then they had to pay you. So they called it the 30 mile zone and it was an old fashioned way of describing Hollywood in the twenties and it went away. And I saw it on the back of a contract when we were trying to go over, you know, what are we going to call this thing? And I thought, I love the Z. So I figured if you talk, if you call it TMZ, eventually somebody's going to ask the question you just asked, and then we can say there's a story behind it. Oh, that's awesome. So tell me how it started. So I was doing a show called Celebrity Justice in, um, at Warner Brothers. And one of the most important people in my life, Jim Peritori, who was the president of, of the television division there called Telepictures. Um, Jim, um, I had pitched Jim a show called Celebrity Justice, which you mentioned, Dr. Bill. And it was a show about celebrities in the legal system. And I tried to sell it to him and he rejected it twice. And I went back to him a third time. And then he said, look, you give, you know, put it on paper each day for two months, how you would do the show. Cause I don't think there's enough material. And if you can do that, then I'll give you a show. And I did it and he gave me the show and we put it on the air and I loved it. I just loved doing that show. And it was on for three years, but we couldn't make business sense of it because we had terrible time periods and we ended up not being able to sustain it. Um, and one of the things that was so bad was that because we had such lousy time periods that if we broke a story and we broke a lot of stories, we would call CNN or Fox or MSNBC. We'd break it on their shows because at least they were on in the middle of the daytime and they weren't on at you know, midnight or one in the morning. But by the time it was on our show, it was old. So Jim calls me in one day and says, how would you like to work on a website? And I looked at him and I said, I'm a television guy. Because remember, the, the internet was nothing back then. It was 2005. And I said, are you kidding me? And then I, my, the light bulb went off and I said, you're killing my show, aren't you? And he said, yeah. And he mm. said, so you want me to do an internet show now? And I said, what's the internet show? And he said, well, he said, you know, we do a lot of red carpet stuff and, you know, we have to edit it down. So 
you know, we could do we could do all the unedited red carpet stuff, and we're 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 teaming up with AOL to do this. And I looked at him and I said, "This country wants less red carpet stuff, not more red carpet stuff." I said, "I could not be less interested, Jim." No, and so um, I left. I left there, and um, I almost made a deal with Fox to produce television shows, and I was really close. And then one day. One weekend, I went to Mexico, and I was laying on a lounge chair with a margarita buzz, and it just hit me. And I thought, wait a minute. The reason celebrity justice didn't work was because we had these crappy time periods, and we couldn't, we couldn't really make it a business. But if, if you have a news organization online, that can really break stories, that operates like a real news organization and break stories. Well, you don't have a time period. You don't have a publishing cycle like a newspaper or magazine. When you get it right, you get it up. You can beat everybody. And it just seems so simple. So I came back to LA and I called Jim and I said, that job's still open? And he said, well, we kind of offered it to somebody else. And I said, okay. And he said, but we didn't sign anything yet, so what's your idea? So we went back and forth on it, and he liked it enough. And he said, okay, if you want to try that, try it. And, um, and that was the origin of TMZ. And that started what year? My, uh, 2005, as a website, thank God, because had we started as a TV show, it would have failed long, long ago. By doing it as a web, at, by the way, you want to talk about risk and failure? I do. Oh, I knew nothing about the internet. I was the guy that would pound a computer when it didn't work. I, I knew nothing about the internet. And even more dangerous, I thought I knew. <laughs> because I figured, well, if I can produce a television show, I can produce a website, you know. Well, I was so wrong. And all of a sudden we're having these meetings with AOL and I don't understand a single word about how this thing works, you know, technically and everything. So I was ready for failure on this one. I mean, honestly, I, I really thought it was going to fail and I just write it out. But, um, you know, it, it just seemed like it was such a simple idea and we figured, you know, let's just try and break stories and let's break stories and break stories. And eventually people are going to notice. And, you know, I remember the first story we broke, Dr. Bill, this is funny. Um, we broke a really big, pretty big story. And I got a call from CNN and they said, well, who are your, so we'd like to put you on. Who are your sources? And I'm like, screw you. I'm not going to tell you my sources are. And they said, well, we're not going to put you on the air. And I had thought about this and I said, okay. Didn't argue with them. I said, okay. And then a day later, they realized the story was correct and others had put it up, but he, they didn't. And this, I was thinking about it beforehand and I thought they're gonna learn like Pavlov's dog. If we keep getting it right, they're not gonna wait. And that, yeah. that, happened, pretty, and that happened pretty quickly. So that's how we branded TMZ. And you know, it, it's amazing because if you look at the inception to where you are now, you guys break some of the biggest stories in the world. I mean, you know, you were, I mean, just in the Colby, you know, I mean, you were the first ones, right? I mean, look, I, I, I've been doing news for 40 years. I'm so old. Um, and, and 
you know, I, I was at CBS, I was at NBC, I was with the LA Times, I was with the Herald Examiner, I was came KBC Radio, KBC Radio. So I've been around a lot. So I've been in a lot of newsrooms. And what we did was we said, we're going to do this. Jim and I talked about this from the ground up. And we're not going to just do things that others do. We're going to look at everything. And if it makes sense, we'll do it. But if we can't justify it, we won't. So we, you know, ultimately on the TV shows, we don't have any anchors. We don't have reporters in the sense of these, you know, people with suits and ties and dresses. We got people in the newsroom that wear T-shirts and jeans. And but they're the people who actually break the stories and it's their voice. So everything was different. And we learned that from the Internet by to opening ourselves up and taking a chance. And what we learned on by doing a digital product for two years enabled us to do successful television shows because I never could have done these shows without the experience of that website. It never would be the same. And that yeah. website was critical, but doing it was a risk. It was a huge risk. Yeah, and you know what? You're right. Our careers are so similar. It's crazy. It's crazy. When we started Discus Dental, our first product was, was Night White. You know, it was a take-home tooth whitener. Right. And, you know, we're building this company. We do $2 million, $4 million, $8 million, six. We're doing like almost $100 million a year. And I'm sitting in the boardroom and I have no freaking idea what these guys are talking about when it comes to the business. I understood the dentistry. So what did I do? I learned just like you learned how to do. I learned. I went back to UCLA. I took accounting. I took business. I took all these things to prepare myself to be better at it. And then we broke Zoom and we broke Zoom on Extreme Makeover in 2003. And we grew that from 76 million in three years to almost $200 million a year in wow. Zoom sales. And from the beginning of Discus until we sold it in 2010, we did $1.3 billion in sales. Wow. And it's not because it just happened. You know, a lot of kids today just expect like things to fall out of the sky. And when yeah, kids and, come and, up and, to me and say, and, hey, Dr. Bill, what's the secret of success? I'm like, it's not a secret. Work your ass off. Yeah, it's, it's called make your own luck. And, you know, we, I talk about this all the time in the office. Look, I came from a generation where, you know, parent, my parents certainly... I mean, they didn't coddle me. I mean, I was, they worked so hard. They worked from, you know, seven and they owned a liquor store, you know, seven in the morning till two in the morning the next day. So I was on my own a lot, even as a little kid. And, you know, you just learn differently that way. But I think kids today, a lot of them, you know, they, they, they benefit from, you know, a lot of, you know, overt caring, you know, and, and, you know, attention and all of that. But I think it softens people. And I, and I hate to say it this way, and I know people are going to hate me for saying it, but I mean it. And I think in, in many cases, it softens people where they do kind of, they don't want obstacles and, you know, they don't want difficulties. And that is life. And you cannot succeed in life, I believe, without being able to understand difficulties and then map out a strategy to deal with them. If you, can, if you don't have that tool... I don't think you can succeed. There is no job, even in success, that doesn't have great difficulties. The larger my company grows, meaning it's more successful, the more difficulties there are that I have to deal with. Difficulties that could really negatively impact the business. So you have to, 
you have to embrace all of this and you have to say, I'm going to make my own luck. You know, in President Obama's book, um, he talks about um, when he was, and he and Michelle were dating, that she realized something about him that has been so true for his entire life to this day. And she said, you know, there are people who take the easy path and people who always choose the hard path. Why do you choose the latter all the time? And he did, but it opened up doors by doing so. If you choose the easy path, you have blinders on because this is the safety zone. And outside the safety zone, if you're not looking, are all these opportunities. And if you're if you got blinders on with peripheral vision, or you're never you need to see them. You need to see them to be able to seize them. And that's to me the problem with people who have who have been maybe too too embraced. Does that make any sense? No, I, I get it. And I agree 100%. So through the inception of TMZ, you know, I'm sure you have a gazillion stories, but maybe you can share one anecdotal story about a really, really big challenge, like, like a time when it's like a life or death thing and you guys had to solve it and how you solved it. Because I think students really learn a lot from those kinds of things because, you know, they look at a guy like you and they think, oh my gosh, everything this guy touches turns to gold. Oh like, God, no, no. But maybe you can share something that was a really, really difficult situation for you guys where everything was on the line and how you kind of solved it and, and you know, what the result was. Well, I mean, there's so many different things. Um, you're kind of putting me on the spot here. I'll give you the, the story that put us on the map because it did have difficulties associated with it. Um, and then I'll, I'm gonna tell you two stories. But the first is Mel Gibson, that in 2006, we were about eight months old. And um, one of my PAs had a friend who was a bartender at a bar called Moonshadows in Malibu. That friend called my PA um, in the morning and said, Mel Gibson was here last night and he got drunk and he got arrested on Pacific Coast Highway. So he came to us. So one of my producers called the police and we confirmed it. And he had been taken to jail. I mean, he was a huge movie star at the time. And so we did the story. Um, and then, and then I got a phone call from somebody and that person said, you don't know anything about this story. He said, Mel Gibson went on a vile anti-Semitic rant um, during this arrest. The Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world and it was out of nowhere. So it was credible. The information I got was credible. I called the sheriff's department up and they say to me, number one, that didn't happen. Number two, you've got this website thing and what nobody, they couldn't even remember TMZ, but you got this website thing. And I am telling you, if you do that story, you are going to be so wrong that it will destroy your business. So you take that chance, but I am telling you, it will destroy your business. You are so wrong. And that gave me pause, obviously, right? Because they seemed so certain. So I called this person back and that person then convinced me this really did happen. And then what I found out was that the officer who arrested him had written up a report 
And four of the pages of the report outlined all of the anti-Semitic comments. That report went downtown and the sheriff who used to go to Mel Gibson, who, who, who had this, these sheriff's fundraisers that Mel Gibson would attend, that sheriff ordered that those four pages be taken out of the report and rewritten. And they were. And so I called the sheriff's department back. They said, never happened, never happened. So then I start calling other people involved in all of this. And they kept saying, never happened. And I am ping-ponging back and forth for hours and hours and hours, not knowing how to break the stalemate. Am I going to do the story? Am I not going to do the story? If I do it, is it going to ruin our business? Which, and the sheriff seems so confident. And then I realized, wait a minute. Something's going on here. Every time I talk to the sheriff and they tell me that the story is absolutely false, the other people I talk to seem to get madder. And then I thought, something's going to break here. I'm just going to keep going back and forth because every time I go back to them, they get madder. So something's going to break. And I went back three or four more times. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, check your fax machine. And I look at the fax machine and I've got the four pages of the report that was taken. Wow. Every single word. And then I called the sheriff's department back and I said, so you know that, uh, <clears throat> that's, that story you said that was going to ruin TMZ? Well, I'm holding the four pages right now, okay? The four pages you guys took out. Can I read them to you? I read about two or three lines and they just simply said, all of this will be submitted to the district attorney. And I said, wait a minute. That's not what I'm asking you. Why'd you lie to me all afternoon? Why'd you lie all day long? Why'd you lie? The information will be submitted to the, to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and they wouldn't say anything more. And when I did the stories on this and it made worldwide news, I, the biggest story was the Sheriff Department protecting Mel Gibson and acting so dishonestly. And that was a big story we did. A lot of difficulty and a lot of risk. You want to know something crazy? As a result of that story, I have boycotted every project and movie he's ever been in because of that. I mean, what you do makes a difference in lives. And I think that you realize a very important thing there as well. The anger that it elicited, you know, like you were doing something that people needed to hear. It's funny. I don't know if you remember a man named Bob Stewart. Bob passed away a few years ago. He created five of the top 10 game shows on TV. Oh, I know From who Pyramid he is. to what? Oh, yeah, no, no. I begin, now, that you, now that you say that, they mentioned his name at the Bob Stewart production. I, I know exactly yeah. So Bob was my patient. And, I, and this was like in the early, early days before they had focus groups. I said, Bob, how did you know that you had a hit show? He goes, it was really easy. I would fill my house with all my friends. I'd play the show. And when I heard people yelling out the answers to the questions, it was a hit. And if people weren't paying attention, I threw it away. The fact that people paid attention to you, Harvey, was huge. 
And what you've done is you've taken this little tiny thing and you've grown it into this enormous, really credible news source that actually helps people throughout the world. And it's really amazing. It's really amazing what you've done. Yeah, I mean, I think that overblows it a little bit. I mean, look, we, we're not doing anything that different from what I did when I was at CBS and NBC. I, you know, I, listen, I hear people say, I, you know, there are things we did change for sure. I, I, I disagree. Wait, I, it's my show. I get to disagree. <laughs> I'll tell you what I think you did that's so radically different. You gave people a safe place to go and tell things that were probably not that popular to say. You're right. Mel Gibson was a huge star at this time. And you think the LA Times would run a story about how anti-Semitic he was and how abusive he was? No. You gave people a safe place to say. And you know what? Sometimes you get stuff that's not credible. But you guys do your work and you find out what is credible and what isn't credible. And you give people a safe place to say the truth. And I think that that's huge. I mean, look, in terms of the media, like picking and choosing stories, I look, I, I think the media is, I, I think the media is in big, big trouble right now. Because when you start looking at what's happened, you know, in the last, certainly the last five, six years, um, it's gotten so toxic that everybody is taking a stand that you have now news organizations that are like arms of a political party. I mean, all they do is promote one party and slam the other. That's all they do. And when, you know, on both sides. And when that happens, you know, when they don't tell stories that are important to tell um, because it doesn't line up with the agenda, then it's, how is that a news operation anymore? You know what I mean? It's like, you tell, you tell the good and the bad. I mean, usually, things that you talk about are complex enough that there's going to be good and bad on both sides. But it's, it, it, it feels like it's all lobbying now for a position on both sides. And because of that, you know, I don't, I, you, you watch something and you think, am I getting the, the full story here, the real story? Because this is such, it's so agenda driven that I almost need to look at something else to make sure that I'm not getting, that I'm getting the full picture. And I think that's, the biggest problem right now with media and, you know, and, and you superimpose, you know, this cancel culture and everything else that's going on. Um, this is a really bad time. It's a really yeah, bad time. It's really hard. Yeah. I want to switch gears for a second. One of the things that differentiates our podcast from others out there is we like to give students some real pearls on like, things they could do if. So if I were a student listening right now and I wanted to start some kind of a, a TV news show or something, what are some of the steps I could take to prepare myself for, for success? Okay, so I'll, I'll give you two things it, and I'll do it in this field because I can't do it globally, but I'll do it at least in this news field that we're talking about. Um, this applies to everybody, to everything. The way to succeed, the first thing you need to do if you're going to start something, if you're going to start anything, you ask this question, where is the hole in the market? 
That's the question you ask. It is the first, that, for me, that is always the first question I ask. When I started TMZ, um, the reason I wanted to do this as a news operation was I figured there's a hole in the market in the sense you've got nobody doing things in real time. And if you had a news organization online, well, they didn't, they didn't exist back in 2005. But if you had a news organization online that was actually doing news, you know, finding stories and, you know, with lawyers and researchers and producers and all of that, and then you publish it and it's credible and everything else, that, that there was a hole in the market for that information, that I could find something out at 2.38 in the afternoon rather than, you know, at 6.30 at night when the, when the nightly news is on. You know, with the Mel Gibson story that I told you about, I think we published it just before eight in the evening on a Friday night. Well, if we were a TV show, it would have been over and we couldn't do it until Monday. We did it at like, you know, 7.58 or something like that because we could. And by 8.30, it was all over the world. So the point is there was a hole in the market there and we filled it. And it was, you know, another hole was simply that the entertainment business was being run by publicists who were basically telling television shows and magazines, do this and I'll give you this person for the next interview, do that. And there was all this horse trading going on and you know, stories that weren't true were going up and stories that were true weren't. So you know, that was a hole in the market too. So that is the key to this thing, hole in the market. You know, in terms, I'll give you one example of what you think of and I'm gonna use journalism as an example that if you are 21 years old right now and you're thinking, I wanna go into some form of journalism um, or entertainment, um, you can't think about today. You have to think into the future, especially in these times. And I'll tell you what I mean. That, you know, if you went into the publishing business 10 years ago, somebody should have said, wait a minute, all this stuff that's going online, what happens if it becomes digital? You know, what's going to happen to bookstores and books and everything else? You need to think into the future when you're young and start thinking, where is the business I'm interested in going? Because with the Kindle, it changed a lot. In my business, what's interesting about my business and my great fortune was to be able to start online and do a digital product and then a television project. Because what I was able to do was learn about what a digital platform is and then apply some of the assets to television, but understanding both. So when you go online and when you look at a television, you are only going there for two things, only two things, entertainment and information. That's it. Entertainment and information, those are the only two things and it's what you go to both for, okay? So if you're thinking, okay, I wanna be a television reporter because I, you know, it looks cool and everything else and you look at all the people on TV. So you could say that today, but here's what I'm thinking. And this, what I'm trying to do is get your heads into the future. If, if I'm right that television and digital serve the same function, there are televisions now that are integrated where you can use the television for television or the internet, right, Dr. Bill? Right. Okay, so if you can use them for both, and I'm gonna to go to the internet for this and television for that, why, why do I have two things on that set? If both of these things are for entertainment and information, why, are there, why do I have to go to this for this and that for that? Why isn't it just one? And why am I not just using the best assets that I got in television and digital and 
using those assets to produce really cool pieces of entertainment and information. And so, wait a minute. So if you can do that on this one screen, you know, and I've been saying this for like for 10 years and I, cause I call it intervision. And, and I said, you just get a big menu and you put it on the screen and you could say, okay, I want to watch news. Well, I can watch this, 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 and this. I want to watch sports and I want to watch this, 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 this. And so you can go on this menu. Well, all of a sudden you don't need television stations anymore. You don't need um, studios anymore because you could have independent production companies putting all of these things on a menu. And lo and behold, today, I mean, Netflix is not doing that, but you can see a menu, right? And, right. and so what I'm saying to you is that if I was advising somebody on what do you want to do, I would say to you, do not bank on television and do not bank on the internet because I think both of those are going to be gone and this new thing is going to replace it. I really believe that. I've seen that. It's, this is in my, my bones for 10 years right. that I've seen this. And, and if I'm right, then, okay, today, maybe you go into television. But then what you do is, as this grunt reporter, you go to your news director and say, I got ideas. And what I would do if I were 21, I would say, hey, here's my vision of what's going to happen in the future. So can we maybe produce a couple of things that kind of blend the internet and television? We do that on TMZ Live on one of our television shows. It is a combination of the two. But right. if you are a young person and want to get into that field, think about the points you score going to your news director because that is what you, what you call a hole in the market. And you go to your news director and all of a sudden he sees this 20 year old kid as a visionary that he can learn from. And your stock goes like this. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. And you know, at Leap, we like to blend education and entertainment. We call it edutainment. <laughs> and, and, and it works. Yep. And uh, you know, I think that that's really, really critical. I think to be successful in business, you have to have the foresight for what's going to happen in the future. And, and, you know, and being the first to market is always a huge, huge, huge advantage. Huge. It's, it's almost everything. Before we end, I want you to tell me, what would you say going back through the whole TMZ history, if you had to say the one biggest, biggest story you ever broke besides Mel Gibson, cause that put you on the map. What would you say was probably your biggest story you ever broke? The one that you that you really will like take it to the end. The one that had the most impact on us, on us, I think was Michael Jackson's death. Um, because it, it's really interesting that in the early days of TMZ, um, for the first four or five years, Everybody was doing stories on us because they thought, oh, this sweet, cute little website, you know, broke this big Mel Gibson story and, you know, this could be the future and everything else. So they're, you know, the Washington Post and, you know, the Today Show and Nightline, they were all doing stories on us and, and really great stories. And I was just thinking, they're going to figure this out someday <laughs> that we're their competitors, but they, they never viewed us that way. 
And, you know, and what we did was we used to go on television, on their shows all the time, on the television shows. And we used to give them stories. We'd give them video for free. And they thought, oh my God, they're giving us everything for free. Well, what they didn't realize is they were helping brand us. And so I was just thinking, how long is this going to last until they realize suddenly, oh, these guys are actually our competitors. And so the Michael Jackson story was that day. And we broke that story. Um, And the LA Times actually, shortly thereafter, came out and contradicted the story and said he was in a coma, he had not died. And, um, And then everybody had to choose. You know, who do you pick if you have to go with one? And most people pick uh, the LA Times and they were wrong. And all of a sudden TMZ became a competitor and a threat because all of a sudden it's like, we're, we're in their playground and what's going on here? And everything changed that day. Our relationship with a lot of the others changed, you know, and it, it was just, it was a really interesting defining moment, but it happened literally that day. It literally happened that day that you saw that turn. Um, wow. So I would say of all the stories, it was the most consequential. Amazing. So my last question, what's next for Harvey? Jet skiing. <laughs> I love jet skiing. Jet skiing. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I haven't made... I, I, I would like to start taking it easier because seven days a week for 15 years gets tiring. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. The, one of the great things about life, and I think you learn this as time goes on, is that you don't necessarily always have to have a plan. That sometimes if you don't have something that you feel passionate about or love, it's better not to force it and just do something for the sake of doing it. That if you can feel confident enough and not like freaked out by not having a plan for the future, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, if you just slack off forever, it is. But if you really are just thinking and just saying, look, I'm not gonna jump, I'm gonna find something that I know is gonna work and something I'm gonna love or like, or you know, have passion for, um, you should feel comfortable with that. And I think one of the problems that people have is everybody, you gotta have a plan. What are you gonna do when you grow up? What do you wanna do? It's like, at a point, you don't need to decide that. And first of all, anybody watching this who's in school right now, you have no idea. You don't know, you think you know, but you don't know. You just don't know. And accept that, embrace that, celebrate that, that you are young and you have all these possibilities. Why? commit to something just because you did two years ago when you have a world out there. Look at the world. You do stuff that's productive now, but open your eyes to what's going on everywhere because in the least likely of places, you could see something that would change your life forever for the better. You're so right. You know, of all things, I had this huge epiphany of that with, of all people, Oprah. Um, When Extreme Makeover was on the air in 2005, I got invited to do Oprah. And Oprah sits me down and she says, Dr. Bill, you've had a career unlike any other dentist in the world. I mean, you're a New York Times bestseller. You've been knighted. You've been this. You've been. She has all these things. She goes, what made you think so far outside the box? Now, this was not 
that's why Oprah. That's, that's why time. Oprah. That's why Oprah is the best at what she does. Yeah, that's a great question. This was not a common phrase, and I looked at Oprah and I said, "What box?" And that's literally been the best way to describe my entire career. And I think that the biggest obstacle that kids hit, you mentioned fear and also putting themselves in boxes. Stop doing that because the world is your oyster. You just need to open it and look at all the possibilities. And you can't put yourself in a box. If you want to be successful, you need to come up with new, different, innovative things and you'll flourish. Think of life as a parachute jump from 15,000 feet. That if somebody jumps and then gets scared immediately and then pulls the ripcord, then they're going to kind of float down, which is cool and everything else, but it's safe, right? Somebody else knows that you don't have to pull the cord, say, until 5,000 feet. I'm not sure it's 5,000, so don't follow my advice here. But let's say it's 5,000. That person takes a thrilling ride and, then, and eventually pulls the ripcord and lands as well. Who had a better ride there? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you know what? It's all about the ride. Harvey, thank you so much. I know that you are one of the busiest people on the face of the earth. And for you to carve out this time hey, and help friend. do this you're my friend. means the I world to me. Love doing it. Thank you. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you, thank you. All right. Hey, so if you haven't signed up for LEAP yet, you can get information at www.leapfoundation.com. Our next program, again, will be July 18th to the 24th. We hope to see you there. Dr. Bill and Harvey, over and out. To learn more about the Leap Foundation, go to leapfoundation.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leapfoundation or on Instagram at leapfoundation. Listen to the Meet the Mentor podcast with Dr. Bill Dorfman on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.